You know, guys, if you're a shitty indie podcaster such as myself, the best thing you can possibly do is networking. Network with those big guys who have those big shows with those big names. You can barely pronounce. And for the past year and a half or so, I have been doing just that. And I, throughout this journey, have obtained a podcasting BFF. And none other than Jordan Heath of... Ah. Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling Podcast. Ah, such a long, unnecessary name. And as I have appeared on his show three times by now... I know you're still waiting for the third appearance, I am as well. I have been constantly asking and nagging Jordan to please come on my show, and the dude just does not have the time. To be fair, he makes like ten episodes a week. So, in an attempt to imitate and fabricate my BFF, so I may climb up to his level, I have been very busy in pumping out a lot of content. Guys, I have been focusing my intent. And as everybody who spends their days pursuing perpetually elusive creatures which they will never obtain in their lifetime, I have been constantly and constantly focusing my intent to uh, culminate in the unintentional manifestation of Atalpa. Atalpa of Jordan Heath. Guys, as you will hear, this episode is co-hosted by a passionless, soulless husk of what used to be the original man. But hey, I got Jordan on my show anyway. At least in some form. Hey, if you can't talk with real friends, at least you can regress back to your childhood and pretend play with your imaginary friends. So what better topic to cover with a fraudulent forgery creature than hoaxes? Talpa Jordan and I sat down today and discussed hoaxes, but throughout the process, Talpa Jordan came to ponder over the existential horror of his mere existence in our universe. And soon he realized that fraudulent fake forgery creatures can also be people too. Man, he's gonna be pissed from all these jokes. And by the episode, guys, Jordan realizes that he has the power to obtain his own autonomy. He turns into a real boy and goes off on his way. And what you are hearing today is the ectoplasmic residue that was left behind, which I like to view as an imprint of our conversation in a certain point in time and space. What we have learned today, guys, is that be they real or fake, monsters just wish to obtain a sense of belonging and the warm embrace of humanity. Finally, with me today, and I got him to get out of his shell after appearing, what is it, three times now on your show. Hmm? You're finally here, and I need to ask yeah. you, Jordan, how does it feel to be on a podcast and talk and not have ominous music in the background? It, it's it feels strange. I'm more scared without the ominous music at this point. <laughs> Are you scared from the silence or from uh, the fact that you're on my own show, <laughs> which is very anti-structure compared to your show? 
Honestly, I'm very excited. Like you said, I've had you on our show a bunch of times and I'm like, I'm honored to be on your show. I think you've always made incredible shows. Both both your shows have been like a huge inspiration to me. So I'm in our conversations even more. So I'm yeah, I'm excited to be here for sure. And as I say, like your uh, show is very structured. Mine is very anti-structure. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing today and what we're talking about is very, very transgressive and anti-structure in the paranormal community hoaxes yes i think we might accidentally piss some people off today or purposefully (laughs) (laughs) um uh, also ironically like the first episode i appeared on on your show fireside chats we were talking about hoaxes yes since we've been chatting and doing content together it's something that we have both expressed appreciation for but it's something that you cannot uh, express appreciation for very uh, lightly in these communities yeah people take it very seriously i'll just say up top i think the people who take these hoaxes to heart people who are offended by it are people who haven't spent much time actually considering what the nature of these things are it's i mean of course it's a lot of the flesh and blood nuts and bolts crowd they don't like it you know they want to sit at the cool kids table with the scientists yeah but they want to sit with scientists yet uh, they are fooled by uh, very dubious things without going for the scientific methods to test it out yeah i mean they're the girl in the 90s teen movie who gets tricked into thinking the popular boy will bring her to prom you know (laughs) (laughs) and all along it was just a joke and they really just want something from them only to be cast back to the darkness of cryptozoology afterward so you want to say that people who are naive are the ones who go for the flesh and blood and nuts and bolts stuff (laughs) Okay, so personally, I'm not a person who discounts the flesh and blood stuff out of hand. I think that most of these theories can exist simultaneously, and I think it's a good thing that they do. I think that the people who are those diehard flesh and blood people who are just obsessed with the idea of Bigfoot has to be added to some, you know, to some ledger somewhere as a confirmed bipedal ape in North America, I think that's a little naive. I do. Also, like they go out of their way to even talk about creatures from other cultures and appropriate them as Bigfoot. I already talked about that a few episodes prior. And also like you discussed this with Joshua Kutch and the Bigfoot crowd, like all the paranormal esoteric woo stuff that goes around Bigfoot, they just explain it all as, oh, that's infrasound. As Jeremy Vaney said on my show the other day, uh, Bigfoot farts. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Like I said to Joshua, I don't know how many times I've had missing time while visiting tigers in the zoo. So I don't think I don't, I don't really buy the infrasound thing. I don't know. I I was going to say, I think that even it is naive, of course, to maybe not, of course, I think it's naive to think that Bigfoot is definitely a flesh and blood creature. But it's more naive to think that if it was confirmed that the whole field of cryptozoology would just be taken under the wing of mainstream science, you know, and they seem to think that that's a possibility okay so i talked about this a few times i don't know how how much i fleshed it out on my appearances where i discuss it but i love this idea of uh, bigfoot existing as different entities i mean even you you are a brother a husband a son a grandson a father you are multiple things at once 
you know? Yeah. So Bigfoot can be a flesh and blood creature, but it also is a folkloric construct. And what cryptozoologists are studying, because we don't have the flesh and blood creature, uh, maybe it is out there, but we don't have it documented. We yeah. don't know what a Bigfoot is. It can be anything. We yeah. have the folkloric construct. And yet they are studying a folkloric construct and thinking if they find the creature that they would receive recognition because they are essentially folklorists because once the creature is you know discovered documented classified in the tree of life it is now the subject of biological science yeah they're not just gonna like invite in the the cryptozoologists to you know study the to study the actual creature they would rely on real biologists yeah it would be like when the gorilla was discovered yeah um you already know what they did they did not ask the people uh what their opinion is of the creature and of the folklore around it because biology isn't concerned with opinions yeah i think the problem comes down to they they are folklorists who are studying this folklore entity they're trying to study it with the scientific method they're they're going about it incorrectly. The most legitimate way they could study Bigfoot is as a creature or an entity of folklore yeah. to study its sociological impact. Yeah, they are using methodology of uh, physical material science to study something that they do not have materially. They yeah. do have it uh, sociologically, psychologically, culturologically, ethnologically. I, I, you can mm. say this is ethnozoology, not cryptozoology. And sure. it should be ethnozoology, you know, the the interactions and relationships between the animal world and the human world, our yeah. perception of the animal world, independent of their biology. If you use the wrong methodology, you will not find what you are trying to, to study if you are studying something that is not visible to that methodology, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we talked about that the first time you were on when we talked about hoaxes on my show. We talked about, you know, trying to use the the scientific method to study something that defies being studied. We were talking about this, the concept of the trickster, right? Mm-hmm. The the idea that the that the other or this trickster entity or whatever the source of these 14 phenomena that it actively defies being studied and yet people just go on and on trying to i mean they just keep casting two footprints that got smashed together and they're it's not working so we are just gonna put this out there what we think uh, when we already are discussing bigfoot um and we went off on a tangent but to tie it back into hoaxes what do you think of the Patterson Gimlin footage? I mean, it's it's not real. <laughs> That's what I think. I mean, it is real footage, but of something yes, that yes. is kind of maybe dubious. Yeah, I I mean, to say it plainly, I think I can't know for sure. I wasn't there on that afternoon, yeah. but I am almost certain that the Patterson Gimlin footage is a hoax. I think it fits right into the theme of the show because I, I consider it a hoax. You know what? Uh, I sometimes think maybe I should be on the fence, but uh, then I realize this is peer pressure. My gut feeling is that it's a hoax. And it's a gut feeling from actually being from the academic scientific community and biology and knowing there is no conspiracy out there in biology to debunk stuff. They just want to catalog the creatures that we can find. If this is real footage, they would have eventually said, oh, this is actual real footage of something and we should look into this. But they take one glance at it and know that it's not real and know that 
there is no point in even giving it a chance because then you are uh, uh, attracting the crowd that you w- don't want around you. Yeah, the the weird kids would come to the wrong launch table. Yeah, my gut yeah. feeling is if it is real, something would have happened around it. There is no conspiracy. Yeah, I think, and I think. Unfortunately, our niche, our field, this is like, it's laden with conspiracy theorists who, and the type that think there's a conspiracy behind everything, like everything that doesn't make sense to them, they label it a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I don't, I don't see why, (laughs) why, let's say the government or the scientific community would actively maintain a conspiracy to hide away the existence of a stupid smelly ape man in the forest. As if there's not much more important stuff. Plenty of apes have been cataloged. Like, what's the resistance for this one? Exactly, and like, they could not keep up the conspiracy of MKUltra and other stuff, the Tuskegee experiments. So, real fucked up shit that the CIA did. And yet, they are able to to maintain the conspiracy of, of a smelly ape man in the forests, which brings <laughs> nothing to the table to them. Yeah. See, that's that's always my problem with conspiracy is I don't have the confidence in I don't have the confidence required to believe that a group of, of that large could keep a secret for that long. It just doesn't happen throughout history. It hasn't happened. And also with the Patterson Gimlin footage, Patterson was known to be kind of a con man and a yeah, hoaxer. Yeah, he absolutely was. Okay, so now that we have pissed off the flesh and blood crowd and they have unsubscribed from my show, we're <laughs> going to go to the uh, very interesting part and show you how Bigfoot is real, but not the way that you want. <laughs> yeah, I actually wasn't done pissing people off. Do you mind? Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Okay, so you mentioned that Patterson was sort of a known con man, Mm -hmm. right? I think that that's a thing that is often overlooked by people or kind of like tossed aside. But that's a huge that was like a huge point when I was determining my opinion of the the footage, right? Like I sort of after doing research on him and his life, I kind of put him in the same trustworthiness category as like a Joseph Smith or an L. Ron (laughs) Hubbard. Yeah, just like these notable like I'll believe the Patterson Gimlin footage is real the same time I believe that like Joseph Smith actually found the Book of Mormon in golden tablets in the forest. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And in case there are any conservative Christian creationists, fundamentals here, uh, well, I think they unsubscribed <laughs> a long time ago, ever since they saw that I call myself Darwin. Yeah. I, I, I would love if it turned out to be the boy who cried wolf, that Patterson <laughs> was this con man. Oh, yeah. And that he ended up finding a real Bigfoot and now nobody believes him except the crack. Yeah, I kind of love that story, too. Yeah, because that's just so unlikely. (laughs) Okay, I have this other idea. You know how people, let's say, who hoax crop circles and they come out as hoaxers, but it's more for art and it's artistic expression. Yeah, I follow several of those accounts on Instagram. Yeah, and I know of cases Jeremy Vaney told me of this and it was mentioned on Radio Misterioso from Greg Bishop a few times that these hoaxers who make fake crop circles sometimes actually generate real paranormal phenomena because the process of hoaxing something can be viewed as a rich 
ritual. And it's yeah. something that uh, Alan Greenfield liked to talk about often from the point of uh, Jim Mosley, because he was with Jim Mosley and Gray Barker and that uh, group of ufologists back in the day. Jim Mosley had this thing he liked to do. He would phone in a UFO report that he completely made up in some town. And then he would just mm-hmm. uh, sit and watch the whole town lose its shit throughout the next few days and uh, call in reports of UFOs. But yeah. he never saw a UFO, you know. He just put the idea out there, focused the intent. It's creating magic. It's conjuring high strangeness. Yeah, I love that concept. Probably I almost had Alan Greenfield for an interview. Mm-hmm. It kind of slipped through the cracks. He was like making the rounds for a minute and then he kind of like fell back. But it's still a bucket list guest. I want to talk to him so bad about that. If you get him, talk to him about hoaxes and yeah. uh, about Men in Black, because he is one of the people who took one of the only known photos of Man in Black. And he was, I mean, it was basically, I mean, the the concept, though, was invented by Gray Barker and who's the one fellow who actually uh, had the experience. Albert Bender. Supposedly. Yeah, okay, Albert so Bender. Albert Bender had what, I don't know, we, we can assume are genuine experiences of the men in black. Yeah. Uh, but he kind of suffered from some kind of epilepsy. And when he'd sure. get a seizure, he would uh, see these this trio of men in black. And they were kind of more demonic than what we yeah. perceive now as men in black. But the thing is, uh, he told Gray Barker his, his story. He did not want to publish his own book. And Gray Barker incorporated that into They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Mm-hmm. Then later, Albert Bender would publish his own book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, I think it's called. But the thing is that Gray Barker was published, right? <laughs> was the publisher <laughs> like and editor Barker. of that yeah. book. So uh, anything you yep. see in that book is not really Albert Bender's. It's it's mostly Gray Barker's work. Yeah, he had his hands all over the building of that mythos, for sure. Oh, Gray Barker had his finger in a lot of pies. Like, if it was Absolutely. not for Gray Barker, Flatwoods Monster would not be a thing now. And all of these people on Instagram creating art of Flatwoods Monster would not be creating art of it if not for Gray yeah. Barker. Yeah, I'm surprised he's not talking... I think the hatred of hoaxes is the reason why he isn't talked about with more reverence to this day. Exactly. And I look at Gray Barker from the aspect of Alan Greenfield philosophy that it's not important what's a hoax and what is real. What is important is the intent. And uh, hoaxing is myth making. And via hoaxing, Mm -hmm. you put out your intent and idea in the ether and it summons high strangeness or let's say an egregore (laughs) yeah i mean it's magic that's how alan greenfield characterizes it it's basically you're creating magic through ritual yeah and the process of hoaxing is a ritual you need to put a lot of effort to compile all of these things just like when you're doing a ritual you need a candle you need sage you need the crystal blah 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 Uh, for hoaxing you need a lot of material and you need to focus all this intent and if you're hoaxing a Bigfoot video like Patterson and Gimlin a lot of stuff went into that yeah a whole lot of ritual yeah a whole I would love to believe that maybe they really did get a guy in a shitty suit but that's not the film that we got but rather Rather, they got a guy to imitate a shitty Bigfoot and a real Bigfoot appeared because of the ritual. And then they shot that one. (laughs) And now you have a guy who says, I made the suit and another guy who says, I was in the suit. And that really did happen what they're saying, but it's not what is on the footage. (laughs) 
that yeah i love that idea because like they openly they openly discuss the fact that they were going out to look for a bigfoot yeah right so i mean again on its face that's another reason why i find the the whole thing pretty incredulous because people so rarely experience this phenomenon while they're looking for it and then when i say this phenomenon i don't just i don't mean bigfoot i mean in general anomalous situations they occur when people aren't expecting them oftentimes when people are relaxed or zoned out and they also occur uh, opposite of what you are expecting so today i put out an episode with ufo bigfoot and he shared this story he had of an orb that turned into 12 different orbs and the more he was looking at these orbs and focusing his mind on them the more they uh, started looking kind of material tangible you know the moment he thought in his head that it was a tangible object at that moment they started to essentially disappear or dissolve into a mist yeah so it's constantly doing the opposite of what you are intending and what you are uh thinking about I mean, that's also very, I mean, that's very similar to, I don't know if his experience, that experience was while on psychedelics. No, no, this was not. not. But that's very similar to the uh, psychedelic experience because you sort of, you gain all these experiences and then they kind of fade quickly. Like it's, it's often described as like trying to hold water in your hands. Oh yeah. The more you focus, the more it just dissolves. Changes and moves away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now the reason I say that, uh, we are going to show how Bigfoot is real, even though the Patterson Gimlin footage is not real and that it is real in maybe a way that you listeners don't like (laughs) is because (laughs) I have this idea that even if the Patterson Gimlin footage is a fake, that does not mean that Bigfoot is fake and that Bigfoot is not real. It's just that uh, the Patterson Gillen footage is now an industry and a media mogul and it sparked Bigfoot to be kind of a pop cultural icon. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's the magic of it because I see the Patterson Gimlin film as a hoax as more valuable than say if we had a video of a real Bigfoot and a shitty Absolutely. video. Absolutely. Yeah. Because this video reached, you know, a wide audience, it solidified the image of Bigfoot into everybody's minds and now more and more people throughout the decades since this film got out are seeing Bigfoot, more of them are seeking Bigfoot Bigfoot hunting is in itself a magical ritual. And yeah. what I think Bigfoot is now is an egregore. Yeah, I'm I'm completely on board with that idea. I mean, it's a cultural construct at this point. Yeah. It's the thing is, I think the the phenomenon of Bigfoot was sort of localized before the Patterson Gimlin footage. Because obviously indigenous cultures have had, you know, wild man, wild men as part of their mythologies for as long as there have been people. Yeah. Um, but it was it was sort of localized. That's why people who dig into the idea of a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot, they find, you know, you always hear them talking about like, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. All these little indigenous cultures spread out all over the world have these myths and they say, well, that's proof that it exists because it's all over the place. But I think what Patterson Gimlin did was they pulled all that together. They blasted it blasted it into the realm of pop culture and it it became a phenomenon like in the colloquial sense it became like a pop culture phenomenon and we're i mean very quickly bigfoot hunting became like an american pastime also like you're saying that it was localized and now became a whole thing an overarching pop cultural uh, icon yeah 
And now, throughout the decades, every state and every every town got its own version of Bigfoot. Yep. So it's essentially this one localized thing spreading and spreading to encompass the whole nation. And once it encompasses the whole nation, once it's present in everybody's mind, then it starts diversifying itself and localizing itself again. Yes. You know? Now uh, yeah. it is forming borders between all the different big Bigfoots of the different states. Yeah, and you end up with things like the Honey Island Swamp Monster and yeah. um, the Skunk Ape and the Beast of Whitehall and the White Thing and all these Momo. variations now. Momo, yeah. All these variations that it's like, well, this is our Bigfoot. He's a little different, <laughs> you know? Okay, so one variation I wanted to go into is Todd Per favorite cryptid because Todd Purse is from Delaware and they only have mm-hmm. one cryptid. <laughs> yeah. And they're cryptid because everybody who does uh, cryptid US states does this one for Delaware. There's nothing else. It is the Selbyville Swamp Monster, which is supposedly oh, a Bigfoot thing. Which is such a beautiful hoax. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. that's the irony. Like they're only cryptid and their whole state is a hoax. Yep. <laughs> to be fair, Delaware is the size of some people in Texas's backyard. <laughs> so there isn't a whole lot of whole lot of wild country there. So have you looked into the legend of the uh, Selbyville Swamp Monster? I have spoken with Todd about it on several occasions, but I haven't done any pure research on it. Okay, I have done research. I have a few articles here, but my eyesight is very bad, so I'm not going to even try to read it all. But essentially, yeah, just, just explain it to me. Okay, essentially, this started in 1964. Allegedly, before that, there were local legends of some kind of monster thing. But in 1964, this guy who was working for the local newspaper asked his friend to conduct a hoax with him. And this friend, I think he was 21 years at the time, okay. got a coonskin uh, hat from his granny and a fur coat. <laughs> a mask and a club and the club had a railroad spike through it. (laughs) Yeah. And then he went into the forest and started going out onto the road of route uh, 54, scaring people who were driving (laughs) down the road. (laughs) And this sparked a media frenzy. um, I mean, a local one. Yeah. Somebody took a photo of him and this appeared on the front front page of the newspaper and it sold a lot of light up papers because the whole motive behind this was to sell papers <laughs> and the thing is like he was doing this for quite a while yeah and people would start coming to the swamp to seek out the monster <laughs> and yeah, they, they started hunting come, him right yeah they would come drunk and start shooting at him yeah and You'd think the first time this would happen, the dude would just say, like, no, I'm done with this. But no, he kept doing this and people kept coming to the swamp trying to find the creature and shoot it down. (laughs) And we're shooting at him. That's terrifying. Yeah. That's dedication for sure. So the thing is, 23 years later, in 1987, the guy who was in the suit revealed that he was the hoaxer the whole time. He also revealed that he stopped doing the hoaxing because people were shooting at him. But the thing is, even after he stopped hoaxing, and even after he came out, people still reported seeing the monster constantly. Yeah, it never went away. Yeah. So 
It's this idea like, was there already a legend present there? And then he revitalized the legend via this Hulk sing. And now the legend got a life of its own, even if he is not hoaxing anymore. People are still seeing, I don't know, an egregore or a tulpa or something of this thing. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that, I mean, I think that's the real value of hoaxes, right? Is this idea that it generates genuine experiences in people. And I think that could very well be what's going on there. I mean, some of it's probably bandwagon stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they just want to be another person who saw the Selbyville swamp monster. Yeah. But I think there's there are probably some genuine accounts in there because the idea has been so firmly planted in the minds of those experiencers. Oh yeah, and Todd and I spoke about this on my episode I did with him briefly. He said that th- this place is the great Cypress Swamp. Yeah. And that this is like the northernmost place in America where these cypress trees would grow. So it is in itself a kind of liminal space. Yeah, it's the line right between where these exist and where they no longer exist. Yeah, which makes it rife for for playing with the other. Now, I also find it interesting if there are legends associated with some places. And as you said, they are localized and they are going extinct, these beliefs and legends. If somebody conducts a hoax that revitalizes the the legend, does the legend obtain more power? And um, this was something I went into with Todd. People are going intentionally to Selbyville to the swamp to hunt down the monster and they are focusing their intent. Yeah. And you need to realize how powerful focusing somebody's intent is in uh, sparking something. Like, you know, the app Randonautica. No, I don't. You don't. Oh man. So it's an app. It's an app that you focus your intent. You put some kind of prompt, like, what are you seeking? Vague bullshit. Essentially, Mm -hmm. you are focusing your intent and putting it out there. And then the app will generate a location near you and you go to that location and experience something weird. And people actually experience a lot of weird shit just via this, this app, just by going to that place. Interesting. Yeah. So think of if you are going somewhere, focusing your intent so much that you are traveling to a location that you have set in your mind and expecting to see something, you are bringing all of this energy to that place. If you are coming to this place with uh, so much focused intent and bringing all this energy to the place, you are not bringing the energy only with yourself, but uh, the energy is already uh, there waiting for you in a way. So when I looked into Alexandra David Nail, who was in Tibet uh, studying Talpamancy, there was this uh, concept of monks actually creating talpas of themselves at the place where they are intending to go. Let's say a monk is running towards a certain place and a person at that spot would see the monk before the monk ever came there. They would see yeah. the talpa of the monk come there. We had an episode on Campfire where we talked about that, where we we ended up talking a lot about talpas. I forget what that episode was it's called. It's the Olivia Mabel episode. Yes. 
Yes. And we talked about that story of the monk who makes it back to the monastery and they, they spot him from the window and they go down to greet him and no one's there. There's no way that he could have gone out of eye. Like he was in their eye line the whole time. He yeah. walked behind pillar and vanished. And then later that day, he arrives with his caravan. He tells her, he describes to her that he, that that night he had been laying, trying to sleep and just kept imagining his arrival. Yeah, that's how she, that's what she came. Connected. <laughs> so imagine if you're if you're trying to hunt down the Selbyville swamp monster and oh man I can't wait for tomorrow morning so I can go to the smelly swamp in Selbyville. Right. <laughs> Sorry yeah. Todd for for saying it like that. And you're focusing your intent so much. Are, can you conjure up a monster there before you ever come there? Can you come there and encounter the monster you conjured, or maybe the locals there stumble upon your monster before you even come there? You know? Yeah. I mean, I don't think Todd would be offended because mangrove swamps literally smell like rotten eggs. Yep. I mean, it's <laughs> atrocious. <laughs> so it's definitely a smelly swamp. That's an incredible idea. I, I love, I'm I'm sort of obsessed. I know like I, for a long time, I was obsessed with the idea of tulpas. Thanks to you. You kind of like, yeah. I had the, I had the, I, I knew a little bit about them, but when you and I really started talking about a year ago now, right? Year, year and a half, maybe. Yeah. That we started talking. At that time, you were really into tulpas. Like, oh yeah, and then I moved that was on. Your main focus, yeah. <laughs> but I'm left back here in the dust, still obsessed with tulpas. I really am. Like that concept, I've read so much. There are accounts of the Dalai Lama actually discussing tulpas, their usefulness. There are um, Dungeons and Dragons spells that are based on the idea of creating tulpas. It's such a fascinating concept. I love the idea of some guy just sitting in his tent like, we're going to get to those mangrove swamps tomorrow and we're going to see this giant beast with a club with a nail through it. And he thinks about it so much that when they get there, the fucking monster's there. Yeah. <laughs> he sees it just because he wanted to see it so badly. He makes it happen. And I could see the Selbyville Swamp Monster. I mean, modern sightings being talpas, but the overarching Bigfoot phenomenon, I would see more as an egregore. Now people would think, what the fuck is an egregore? Isn't that a talpa? <laughs> but talpas are from Eastern Buddhism mm -hmm. and egregores are from what? Some some kind of circle of magic. You you'd yeah. know better. Yeah, it's it's more of a, like a mystic like a mystical concept but like yeah. you really functionally you can think of an egregore as a mass a collective level tulpa. yeah it's a tulpa taken to a cultural level yes and also uh, the tulpa needs a lot a lot of focus and intent in order mm -hmm. to manifest from that single individual who is the Tulpomancer. Yes. But an egregore does not need so much focus and intent from a single person. It rather manifests based on a collective energy that yeah. is accumulated. It gets a little bit from everybody instead of so much from one Tulpomancer. And that's maybe why it assumes so many shapes, because it is accumulating all this energy from various different people from different parts of the US. Yeah, with different backgrounds and different ideas of what it would look like. And it 
it just becomes this amalgam of of images <laughs> in the minds of of people all over the the culture, right? Okay, so Todd will be mad at me if not for the swamp, he'll be mad at me for this. I have found something <laughs> that is much better than the self Beville swamp monster oh, to convey the mad. message that we want. Yeah. So <laughs> this one is from Illinois. It is called the okay. Coal Hollow Road Monster or Kohomo. This is a new one to me. Yep. So the image on Cryptid Wiki is essentially Momo, <laughs> the Missouri monster. Yeah. But I want to read the sightings. So under sightings, it says in May of 1972, Randall Emirate and his friends reported seeing a large white haired creature in the woods near Coal Hollow Road in Pekin, Illinois. Emirate later called a local radio station and described what he saw. Then on May 25th, the East Peoria police received more than 200 calls from witnesses who cited the monster. Oh my god. Yeah. Many witnesses described seeing the creature walking through the woods by riverbanks and through yards, and one caller reported it destroying their fence. During July of the same year, so the, those uh, 200 reports were from May, this is July, mm -hmm. around 100 people entered the woods to search for the monster. Oh. And the search party was eventually called off because somebody shot themselves in the foot. Oh, Christ. I love a monster hunt, though. Yeah. So the very next month on July uh, 29th, a witness reported the police uh, to the police that they had seen a large hairy man swimming in the Illinois River. And in July 28th, a woman reported seeing the creature near an abandoned mine. Ooh. That same night, two more witnesses contacted police, giving them a description of the same monster. So this was going on from uh, May to the end of July. And it all started in May of 1972 with this uh, Randall Emirate guy. Now, the thing is, and I'm going to this uh, part of the article, which says hoax. Okay. <laughs> It says, years later, Randall Emirate, the guy who first reported the monster, revealed in an interview that he and his friends never actually saw anything. He said that he made it up to prank another friend, and somehow the story grew from there. Despite this, people still search for the monster, and other Bigfoot sightings remain in the area. That's incredible. Yeah. It's like over 200 sightings came from this, this one, yeah. this hoax. Yeah, that's <laughs> man, that's amazing. And I bet so many of those people who saw it would swear to you on their dying breath that they saw it. And it's fascinating that you even have a timeline. You have yeah. a timeline that this dude in May reported this to the authorities or rather to a radio station. Yeah. Oh, a radio station, a local radio station. OK, and then at the end of the month, May 25th. 200 calls from witnesses to the yeah. radio station. Like that was like the incubation period for the for the phenomenon. And then like you think, okay, 200 people want to be special, you know, and they're calling in reports. But then you uh, create a group of 100 people to go out and search for the thing and somebody ends up shooting themselves in the yeah. foot. Those are high stakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Man, that's you know what that really reminds me of. That mm-hmm. reminds me. Uh, that reminds me of the re- sort of the the beginning of the modern dogman stuff came from a song that a radio DJ made. He put it out around Halloween, and by the end of November, the the radio station was just flooded with calls of people saying that they'd seen. Dogman. Very similar. That's the same thing like with Jim Mosley calling in a fake UFO sighting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't know with Jim Mosley who he was calling and how this information would have spread throughout the town. Right. It's obvious if you're calling in to a radio station, then people are listening and sure. this is in their heads. Yeah, I mean, I would have to have to look into that, how who he was reporting these sightings to, right? Yeah. Because it might have back then a lot of people reported things like this to radio stations. It's incredibly common in these stories, especially from the 60s, 70s. The people would, they see weird shit and they call the radio station. Also, I think it's very interesting how you already covered the Beast of Bosco and you already talked about how these small towns gain a cultural identity of their town based on a monster and based on the whole town ganging up to capture the monster. So yeah. How much of this is actual paranormal phenomena being generated by a hoax or rather uh, the need of a small town to gain an identity and maybe bond over something? Maybe it's a town where nothing ever happens. And now somebody saw a monster and this town that is eager, a hundred people eager for anything to happen for them to just go out of their houses and conglomerate to do something. Yeah. They go out to hunt a monster. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I mean, any anthropologist will tell you that human beings are communal, right? It's in our DNA that we need companionship from other human beings. And I think, I, I almost guarantee, I'm, I'm guessing, it's a shot in the dark, but I almost guarantee that the number of occasions like this have gone up as community has gone down in the priorities of, of these towns. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of people okay. talk about like the disintegration of community in its classic sense. And how how has that influenced monster sightings to go up? Yeah. I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Just that that need on the human level to bond with your with your community. I think that that's shown in like we talked about in our episode with the Beast of Busco. It's shown through the creation of these festivals that celebrate these things because they're proud of them. They're moments of pride in the history of their town. And even when it's a even when it's a known hoax. Right. I mean, the town where the lizard man of Skateboard Swamp was yeah. seen. And that's so obviously a hoax. Or let's say Douglas, Wyoming, the jackalope. Yes. They have yes. jackalope festivals. Right. And they're even when it's like that, when it's a noted hoax, these are like moments that communities celebrate as like a sign of their bond as a community. I think that could be a really powerful thing. I see a lot of uh, paganistic undertones to that tighten it a small community creating an idol they can kind of worship and bring offerings to offerings in the form of the festival and creative offerings that as uh, uh, me and Todd would think imaginal yeah. offerings but also creating an uh, idol which is a personification of your uh, town's identity yeah I mean that's those are very pagan concepts and th- think about it like this exists in America even though it's a very paganistic concept via mascots even sport mascots oh yeah absolutely yeah. I, I mean you don't see outside of the military you rarely see instances of camaraderie stronger than you know a college football team in america yeah 
Yeah, I mean, that. yeah, that's a great comparison. Monsters, they do become town mascots. You know, when you go to Churubusco, Indiana, it is very obvious that that town exists around Oscar, not the other way around. Also, like, I listened to Monster Talk when they had that uh, professor from Indiana University talking about the yeah. Beast of Busco, and he was kind of making fun of it. Oh, these people are uh, worshipping uh, giants, monstrous turtle, whatever. But isn't yeah. that the same as let's say fans of a sports team essentially worshiping the mascot of the team and the mascot is oftentimes an animal an anthropomorphized animal or a monstrous thing there is some innate quality a part of the human experience to kind of worship monsters in a way and create idols and mascots out of them yeah i think the only difference between worshiping a monstrous turtle and worshiping your local college sports mascot is the monstrous turtle is far more interesting (laughs) (laughs) even if it's just a freaking turtle Yeah, honestly, that was one of my favorite episodes we've ever done because it was because it's local, huh? <laughs> I, I mean, it is local, that which is cool. That's that's a cool tie. But I think because there was nothing mystical about it, it was really just an episode about a human need for community. That's really what it was. Because this town just rallies around this farmer, even though he's like coming up with these ridiculous harebrained schemes, you know. And but they back him one hundred percent. Yeah, and it really brought that town together yeah i found the episode to be heartwarming yeah and i when i thought about that concept like people are making fun of a town for worshiping a giant turtle they're not making fun of point pleasant for worshiping a mothman no 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 it's just the giant turtle that's silly but I don't know, like in um, medieval times, these uh, small kingdoms and lords and whatever would have a fucking onion as their mascot, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's whatever they're proud of, right? We grow the best onions. So it oh, just man. Becomes... So my, my friend's autopsy podcast, Landon, is from Georgia, and they have these peach festivals. Yeah. And even Georgia is known as the peach state. Yeah. And they pride themselves on peaches, and the peach is the symbol of their community. Yeah. I mean, in their defense, Georgia peaches are damned delicious. Ah. They're the be- they're the best peaches. They have a right to be proud. Yeah, a lot of these a lot of these festivals, these like I believe that professor refers to them as proto festivals, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of they're based on whatever the town is proud of. The same way that those old medieval localities used to base their their emblems and things on whatever they're proud of. There are in Indiana there are strawberry festivals, there are covered bridge festivals, there whatever the town is proud of, that's what they celebrate. Also, isn't it interesting how these towns which kind of materialize their monster in the form of a mascot in the form of a statue or something mm-hmm. the monster ceases to be uh, sighted like it fades yeah. away from reality because now it is solidified in the material world as an idol yeah. but uh these monsters which are not solidified as idols let's say sasquatch um mm-hmm. i mean you you can find here and there sasquatch statues or whatever but it's not something centralized and localized you know yeah 
it's spread out. Uh, people uh, continue to see it and have sightings of it. Like these egregoric manifestations only occur if nobody is focusing the intent on a specific point in time and space, let's say a statue or an right. idol of the monster. Right. The Mothman statue in Point Pleasant. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. I actually like to uh, see like if there is data on this, because we know that uh, Point Pleasant and the area have had Mothman sightings even after Keel left and it has yeah. been going on and on. I'd be very interested. I think the statue was erected in 2003. I'd yeah. be very interested to see if there was downfall of sightings since the statue was put there. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'd like to look into that. I wonder if it's because the community has the community has what it needs from the monster at that point. Essentially, you know, like they once Churubusco has their statue, they have their festival they have their bonding point. They no longer need to see Oscar. They no longer need to be out hunting for the turtle. Oh yeah, they don't need to engage with the phenomenon in such a diffuse manner, you know. Right. Going out in the forest in different directions, searching for a monster. Rather, they uh, focus all of this intent at one place and, let's say, a festival and something yeah. like that. It reminds me of this idea I have, and I don't know if if it has a name or something, but, you know, ancient people, let's say the Greeks and Romans, what if these gods were real back then? Right. And when the people started creating sculptures of them, then they solidified these gods into the the sculptures, into uh, symbology, into a more material form, and then the gods ceased to exist. Yeah, that's, I mean... It might be, I mean, that's right there with the concept, right? That Have you ever read American Gods? No, but the, I am aware of it. <laughs> yeah, it's that's a very similar concept, right? To all this that we're talking about, really, because the characters in the book are, they're gods from the old country. They exist through the belief of, of their patrons. And as the belief has dwindled over the years, they become less and less powerful to the point where like some of them are like getting jobs in a slaughterhouse and they're like, you know what I mean? They're like dropped yeah. down to these low levels because they, they don't have the power. They need to experience what it is to be a human. Yes, because they no longer have the belief that, that backs them. I always end up thinking about American gods when we talk about this stuff because, I mean, we're literally talking about things that exist because people believe in them, because they focus their intent on them. Yeah, but if somebody, uh, let's say, erects a statue of a mothman and it becomes the central point of the town, which tourists flock into to touch the butt of the mothman, sure. <laughs> do people cease to uh, believe in the reality of the Mothman because now they see it every day as a statue and they can come visit the statue instead of going out and searching for this elusive thing. Yeah, I think there. it also might be, this might be like sort of controversial, but it it might also be a cheapening of the phenomenon in the minds of the people, whether they realize it or not. You know, once they see it as, you know, once they see it as a, a tourist attraction, once they see it as the center point for a, you know, capitalist festival, you know, Mm -hmm. it could just be reducing the reverence that people hold for the entity itself. Man, we have gone off on a tangent and now this episode is no longer about hoaxes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I love this. I I love these freeform types of episodes where we can just go into anything. Yeah, we always knew this was going to (laughs) happen.
We originally, listeners, we originally planned to cover a lot of hoaxes here, and then we just went into Bigfoot hoaxes, and now we're talking about uh, what solidifying gods into statues and essentially <laughs> killing them by doing that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a fascinating concept. I know that the Greeks and the Romans, the Romans even more so than the Greeks, had statues erected in the heyday of the of the worshiping of those gods. I wonder if it if it cheapened them. I don't know that that culture considered things like that in the same way we do now, but I know that like when I see the the Mothman statue, mm-hmm. for instance, it does feel sort of cheap. You know, when I see like all these photos all over the internet of like girls with heavy eyeliner touching the statue's butt, like I'm not it that doesn't feel like something to be revered or feared or adored it's like it cheapens it for me Uh, what how i see that Mm -hmm. if you solidify the image of something via statue sculpture art whatever you are essentially limiting what the thing can be like yeah, you're putting chains as on you it. portray it. Yeah, but the thing is, like Mothman is just a, a, an ink blot, like a Rorschach yeah. ink blot. It's just a black blob with what appears to be wings and two glowing red eyes, and that's yeah. a Mothman for most people. Until you have imagery of Mothman that says, "Oh, this is a Mothman," and now as you are limited to only pursuing Mothman as this one thing, your mind is not open enough to actually. Experience experience the uh, phenomenon because the phenomenon is vague it is not uh it is not solidified into a literal objective thing yeah i think because it's so easy when you say mothman to think of that like shiny silver statue with the muscular ass for some reason putting it in that box i think yeah i like that idea that it makes it harder to experience or impossible maybe to experience it because your concept of it is so limited so are do you think we are not intentionally but rather on some kind of instinctual level trying to demystify the universe so we may kill that which is unfathomable and unknown to us i mean that makes way more sense than i wish it did (laughs) (laughs) so essentially anybody out there who's creating art and uh, figurines of cryptids you're actually killing the cryptids by doing that (laughs) yeah yeah man we said we were gonna piss people off but i didn't know we were gonna go this far (laughs) (laughs) oh our good friend todd is slowly killing the kentucky goblins more and more every day Oh yeah, Douglas, Wyoming, which is uh, the center, the center of uh, the jackalope. Yeah. Do you know that uh, Wyoming is the first state to try to get legislation to have an officially recognized state mythical animal? No, I didn't. I knew that they had done some stuff like um, for a while they had like a jackalope hunting season. Yeah. That was sort of like they actually you know, give out and- licenses. Yeah. yeah, they have a statue in the center of their town of the jackalope, mm-hmm. and they have trademarked the jackalope name. Really? Yeah. I mean, the people who made it made it in that town, right? The first yeah. um, taxidermist. I think they were- yeah, the Herrick brothers, and uh, funnily enough, uh, one of the Herrick brothers was named Douglas in Douglas, <laughs> Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I love the jackalope, I think, but it's just because it's so damn cute. 
It's and I I don't normally go for cute cryptids. I like for them to be scary and imposing and you know, I'm I'm a monster guy, I like monsters. The jackalope has always like held a, a special place in my heart among cryptids. I think Christina will approve. Yeah, I think it's because it's so boldly a hoax. And people still love it and adore it and they don't, you know, damn the men who hoaxed the jackalope. They I think it, that that one slipped through the cracks of people's hatred for hoaxing. Yeah, that that's very weird and it's not just the jackalope, it uh the hodag. Yeah. Yeah. Same with the the Gowrow in Arkansas. That's just a mm-hmm. spreading of the Hodag, I'm pretty sure. They're very very similar and only a couple states apart and both come from lumberjack culture. But yeah, the, those are noted hoaxes and people still love it. And again, that's a thing that towns rally around whether they're hoaxes or not, right? Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking now of lumberjack culture and the fearsome critters concept like American folklore, folkloric creatures, these fearsome critters, they're just tongue in cheek fun you know yeah and everybody knows they are fake and made up their tall tales of lumberjacks yeah um, absolutely and yet the flesh and blooders are uh, want everything to be you know material and real and uh, not a hoax and boring hmm so is a uh, flesh and blood cryptozoology actually anti-american <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i'll go that far but <laughs> I mean, it's certainly boring. It takes, I don't know, it take, it sucks all the fun out of it for me. It demystifies monsters, and monsters yeah. should be anything but demystified. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially things like the, the fearsome critters and all that lumberjack lore. I mean, things like the hodag and um, the gowrow and like the snallygaster even, and that stuff is right alongside, you know, Babe the Blue Ox in my book. It's just, they're fun legends. But um, the lumberjacks that were creating these fun tongue-in-cheek myths, they were, they're were they sort of like the unsung heroes on the front lines of the expansion of America across the West. People don't talk about that very often, but they were out in, in the wilderness in a way that none of us could ever conceptualize. I mean, this was like, aside from native cultures, this was untouched country. They had to find a way to, to lighten things. And I think that's a huge part of American history that that doesn't get spoken about very often. And yet how ironic is it? I can't remember his name, but you know, the guy was it in the 50s in somewhere in California or Oregon who was um, faking uh, the footprints of Bigfoot to scare away lumberjacks. It's the guy who actually sparked uh, the Bigfoot to be a pop culture thing. Um, Oh, I can't remember his name either. And isn't it ironic that he hoaxed Bigfoot when lumberjacks were the ones hoaxing fearsome critters in yeah. order to scare away the lumberjacks the pe- yeah. the same people who make up stories of fake monsters yeah there's a reason it didn't work <laughs> 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 they're like we know your game we know what you're doing but I think that I mean that's another that's another angle on hoaxing, right? Because that's that's been used a lot too. I personally I think the going back to the lizard man of Skateboard Swamp in um, South Carolina, I I'm pretty confident that 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 was the impetus behind that as well. I think it was people who live out in the swamps were trying to keep people away from their their area, and I think. 
it was probably a hoax actively put on by them to keep people from wandering into their into their homes. I mean, that's a very ancient concept. Even you said in on a podcast, like a mon- a river monster can save a village of children from drowning. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's a reason we personify these natural forces as monsters, because uh, as Luke told me on the yokai episode, like it is much easier to convey to a person, oh, there's a monster there, don't go there or you'll you'll be killed. Then, Mm -hmm. oh, maybe there is not a monster. And then you go to the river and maybe you die. Yeah. There is an evolutionary advantage to imagining monsters which are not there. Because those who imagine monsters are not prone to go into dangerous situations and have a bigger chance of spreading their genes, you know, to new generations and surviving. I mean, and there's a question is that is that propensity to to see monsters that aren't there just an extension of the hypervigilance that saved so many people when life was much more dangerous? Oh, yeah. So now in our modern rapid pace of life where we close ourselves off uh, from nature and live via gadgets and stuff like that, uh, we are left with these monsters in our heads that are a part of the social unconsciousness. Yeah, because seeing yellow eyes in the bushes at night, being able to see those eyes could have saved your life, you know? And that people who who saw danger even sometimes where it wasn't were more likely to survive. I'm I'm seeing that as kind of a transition of instinctual uh, behavior because what was once an instinct that allowed us to survive in the wilderness, now that it is no longer necessary, but we still have it in our brains, our culture and our minds kind of shift the focus of it to something other, let's say, creativity and art and imagination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even the monsters are evolving alongside us. They are instinctually there, but we uh, learn to use them in new ways that were not maybe available to us before, because before you needed the monster in order to survive. You did not have the opportunity in your life to create digital art of a mothman let's say right but now you have uh, opened up new dimensions for your manipulation of reality <laughs> and now yeah. you use that instinct for a completely different purpose yeah now that human beings have you know secured their environment to the point where we're just overrun with leisure time we that can be filled with can be filled with art and writing and creation those leftover instincts that we no longer need are just kind of funneled into those pursuits. Yeah. So essentially, these monsters in our heads uh, have an innate need to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And either they will express themselves as a warning sign to allow us to survive, or if that opportunity is not presented to them, they will uh, express themselves in a more creative, artistic manner. But the point is that wherever you are, in whichever time period, the monster wants to express itself. It wants you to project it onto the reality of the world. Yeah, in some way, whatever way is available to you. That's fascinating. (laughs) Monsters are not scary. Monsters are just expressions. Yeah, they're just these uh, silent companions to humanity. Not always silent. (laughs) (laughs) The hands of the king, let's say, the advisors. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> or the angel and the demon on your shoulders. And I like, um, you know, when you talk about um, evolutionary holdovers, right? It's, I don't, I don't think people realize how much of that, how much like even down to the expression of your genes, it can be affected by the lifetimes of people who came before you. You have all this like epigenetics stuff that you hear about a lot more now. Like um, several generations after the Irish potato famine, you had generations of people who were more susceptible to obesity. Like, yeah. And it's it's powerful, right? Because things that people went through so long ago, they've just developed over time and they're still they're still kind of coded inside us. Now, are they coded biologically or is this just something that we dump into the collective unconsciousness? into the ether that's a good question and i mean this would be a three-hour episode if we would go into like is our consciousness our own individual or is there an overarching global consciousness that we are just tapping into as devices onto a wi-fi signal right that's a whole other podcast But time back to uh, hoaxing for the end. Like, what do you think? Why why people hoax apart from scammers? And I, when I say hoaxer, I do not mean scammer. I do not mean somebody yeah. who is hoaxing to con somebody for monetary gain. Um, I think there are a lot of different motivations. I think um, we discussed a few of them. Protection of your land is definitely one of them. One of the reasons people hoax. I think a lot of hoaxes are just like I think I feel like a lot of hoax come from a need to belong a need to like be a part of a community i think when someone makes up these wild fan fiction style alien abductions when someone makes up something like that i think it's because they they really just need to sit down and talk to somebody i mean that's really reductionist but this i th- i think that's where a lot of these come from is they just these people just want to be part of something. And that might go into the power of of the hoax going forward is how much like longing and need is part of that ritual. So I am opening up myself to the idea that the point of life is not as everybody would think, uh, just survival and sex uh, reproduction. Right. Uh, the reproduction aspect is only a necessity to continue the, the life itself. But rather, the point of life would be expression. There is some kind of art in life and in reality and of matter having an innate need to express itself. So I would see like the ultimate overarching motive behind hoaxing is expression. These things want to be expressed and projected onto the world. And sometimes we are the ones conveying them. Yeah. Either directly or indirectly, like an egregore is indirectly conveyed and projected Mm -hmm. onto the world, but sometimes people just directly convey the the monster and hoax it. Yeah, I really love that idea. It's just a need for these, for whatever this source is to be played out on the human level. So this source or the other has some kind of needs to experience what it is to be a human. Yeah, or at least what it is to be part of human culture. Okay, so that now goes back to your idea that it is all belonging. Only it's not just us having a need of belonging, but rather the other has a need of belonging with us. Yeah, to bond with humanity. That's sort of a really beautiful concept. Yeah, I like that we went there. (laughs) Yeah. And I like that we pissed off everybody at the very start (laughs) so nobody is listening to this. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. The ones who stay ah, are they're the missing good ones. Out. <laughs>
I mean, you got to get through the, you maybe have to get through the ugly wrapping paper of this episode to get to the gem inside. Well, that's every episode that I do. I know that's what's so good about them. At the very start, I, I make it very uncomfortable for people and they're like, what the fuck is this shit? <laughs> yeah, it's like a, I don't know if you're familiar with the comedian Bill Burr. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, his whole approach is to dig himself the deepest hole possible just to challenge himself to see if he can get back out of it. Right. So he'll like st- he starts every joke with a premise that just makes the whole audience groan like, oh, my God, I can't believe he said that. <laughs> and then he like works back up to making, you know, this to causing this uproarious laughter. That's kind of how I see kind of how I see your your approach to podcasting. Oh, yeah. You're like, I'm going to say something that's going to make you angry. And then if you stay with me for just 45 minutes, by the end, you'll be going, you know, you might be on to something. Yeah. Todd told me like the episode I put out, uh, A Godless Paranormal. Like even yeah. that uh, that title kind of rubs people the wrong way. Yeah. And it's about yeah. atheism and the paranormal. And yet by the end, I go into we don't need a God because we are all equal in nature. And if mm-hmm. there is, you know, a guy, an entity that is a God and we are a part of a guy, an entity, then we are God itself. Which is a beautiful egalitarian message that's, you know, sort of buried in this like title that might piss off half the people who look at it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, and the, like it's the it. same with hoaxes. Um, people are immediately pissed off by hoaxes and uh, are very quick to judge hoaxers and say, oh, they are bastards who are ruining the field and whatnot. But yeah, no, if you give them the chance, uh, the opportunity to express themselves, maybe you see the beauty of that like we have during this episode. Yeah, I think I think we landed somewhere really nice. Yeah, I'm not going like to muddy it. it up anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so Jordan, um, I mean, my my audience probably knows who you are because I constantly gossip about you on my episodes and you never listen to my episodes. So you don't know. <laughs> you don't know all the stuff I told my audience about you. Yeah, um, they're all familiar with it. I listen to your episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, maybe you are one of those who just play an episode for five minutes and like, nope, <laughs> and you don't stay till the end for the beautiful part. I, I haven't listened to a few of them, but in my defense, you've been like pumping out episodes left and right. It's really hard to keep up with all of them. Yeah, it's it's the 15th of this month and already I have 11 episodes out during this month. <laughs> That's so crazy. I don't know how you do it's it. It's kind of a compulsion now. Yeah. I'm yeah. So apparently your audience knows who I am. In case they don't know, can you tell them where they can find you? Yeah. Or rather yeah. where they can find me because I appear on your show a lot. <laughs> yeah. If you want to hear Vuk talk to me, you can um you can find Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling on any podcast platform. Wherever you're listening to this, you can find us. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at campfire.tales.podcast or on TikTok at campfire.podcast. We also just started a Facebook group, Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling fan page, which I'm hoping will become like a hub for fans of the show. So definitely go check that out. Yeah, and I will be linking uh, everything in the show notes. Awesome. We also have a Patreon that you should definitely check out. Oh, yeah, because on the Patreon, they have a whole series about hoaxes, which is about the men in black. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, we also do a 14 news show where we go over like weird articles that we found that week. And we do a series of short horror stories that Ryan and I write. We have a show coming that I haven't gotten off the ground yet. It's been in the works for quite a while, but a show that does a deep dive on missing 411 cases. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to comment there like there is this motif, as you know, in the 14 of essentially these statistical mysteries like the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle, sure. the missing 411, stuff like that. I think it's very important what you are trying to do, essentially give every case the time that it deserves instead of being this statistical anomaly uh, yeah. being treated as a, an individual case. Yeah, that was my that's really my motivation with this. And it's why it's taken so long to get out. Those who you know, our patrons on our on our Patreon have been waiting for it for months. But I want to get it right because it, it's important to me. It drives me crazy how many podcasts cover missing 411 as one episode. They'll talk about it for an hour. But this is thousands of mysterious missing persons cases. And I think they all deserve they all deserve individual treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for having me on. This was super fun. No problem, man. I I love how we get to these wacky ideas by the end that we do not even anticipate. I did not know what's going to happen when we started uh, (laughs) this episode. I thought, wow, we're going to talk about the Philip experiment and this and that hoax. No, it's just Bigfoot hoaxes. Yeah, I'm I'm happy with it. I, yeah. And, you know, yeah. I'm happy to come back some other time and talk through the Philip experiment or talk through something completely different. Yeah. I'm I'm yeah, I'm open to being also, on, uh, on your show <laughs> for anytime. the listeners. You you were um on Clubhouse. Mm-hmm. You you are part of this cryptid community on Clubhouse uh, which organizes every two weeks to share stories. And one week yeah. you uh, it was the theme of hoaxes. And you told me that you prepared to talk about the Phil- uh, Philip experiment. Yeah. And I was uh, there like, that's very early, like 4 a.m. my time. Yeah. And I was listening, listening through one hour of that. And then you just disappeared because your phone, your phone fell into the sink or whatnot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I dropped it because that. The way those shows run, you end up sitting and listening for a lot longer than you're actually talking. So I just had my phone. I had been washing dishes while I listened, and I pulled my phone out of my pocket in that kind of swinging motion, and it just kept going (laughs) right out of my hands and into the dishwater. And my my point is, I was so devastated, and I've constantly been nagging at you, when are we going to hear about the Philip experiment? I want you to do an episode on it. Then I get the idea, let's do hoaxes for my show. And the Philip experiment will sure. Yeah, (sighs) I wanted it to be a central point of this episode. And in the end, no, it still eludes us. Yeah, I have. I'm currently paring down my my write up on the Philip experiment so that it can be an article in Paranormality magazine. Um, Because what I wrote up on the Philip experiment ended up being like 19 pages, man. (laughs) Yeah. Which is far too long for a magazine article. So I'm I'm really working on trying to make it, you know, more concise. It's I mean, that's too long for a podcast episode. <laughs> so it's oh, definitely yeah. too there, long there was for a, a magazine book. article. Yeah. There was a whole There's book so written much on the thing. Yeah. 
It's yeah. Cause I, I went into like the backgrounds of the scientists who were on the team and a whole thing, a whole tangent about how, um, nothing ever happened for them until they made it fun and the connections between the joy that they experienced during the, during the experiment and the phenomenon that actually occurred. There's yeah, there's so much to it. Okay. So listeners, if you want to know more about the Philip experiment, uh, seek out the paranormality article whenever Jordan writes that article. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming. It's definitely coming. Okay. So until next time, I'm going to go to sleep uh, so I don't conjure up a fake ghost of my own in this mental state I am in now. Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) No problem, man. Bye-bye.